0: Welcome to the Craft of Memory. I'm your host, Ronald Johnson. On this show, we seek to recover this beautiful art. For memory without conscious design is like an uncatalogued library. We believe this is a skill that anyone could learn. And the question is, will you seek to hone this craft? You are now listening to Episode Twenty. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Michelle from The Open Score, a pianist, educator, and content creator. We discussed the art of practicing, how to become a better performer, and to develop a more healthy mindset. We went over principles that may be applied to any craft, that one may choose to pursue. We also talked about mnemonics and some of the memory techniques that one may use when playing the piano. So without further ado, let us get into the episode and hope you all enjoy. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your musical background and education, and how did you develop this passion for playing the piano and for teaching
1: sure thing so uh, my name is michelle Lau. i run the open score i'm a pianist and performer and lover of many different interests and so my musical background started when i was about seven and a half um, with the piano i did start a little bit earlier with just general like um, music education for kids kind of like group classes So long story short, started piano about seven and a half and then stuck with it, did like orchestra um, in school and then went into undergrad and also master's in piano performance. And then from there, I've been teaching, I've been performing, I've been doing a lot of um, like online social media regarding music education and performance performance medicine and psychology related to musicians as well, because that's a big... Topic that needs a lot more growth in the classical music industry, um, from what I can speak for anyways, and how did I develop this passion for piano playing um. I think it was just. I'm not going to say necessarily like it was built in through genetics, but it was definitely something that I latched onto very quickly so going back to having those group lessons, music lessons as a child. Um, There was a lot of percussion instruments as they usually do and you learn your solfege and things like that. So I was already interested in like the layout of the xylophones, which is very similar to a piano. And then that particular group was designed to foster you into learning flute. So to do that, you'd go from the group lessons, you'd learn recorder, and then you do flute. Um, I didn't like the idea of Regulating my breath and not being able to breathe while I'm playing when I was using the recorder. I was like I need this is this is silly I want to breathe whenever I want and then I was I was uh, learning the recorder on the other side of the room There was a piano and I was like, that's what I want to play because I don't need to care about breathing as much and having to survive So then I started piano then and then I just like stuck with it. So that's how my passion for piano playing started
0: Nice nice so I see that you also have a YouTube channel, uh, OpenScore, and an, and an Instagram page. So what was the inspiration uh, behind OpenScore? So how did it all start and what is your mission as a content creator?
1: So the Open Score began when I... I would say maybe my third or fourth year of my undergrad of university. It was something that I definitely wanted to start earlier because I noticed that there was not as much help for musicians that got injured. So back in my time, it's a little bit better now, if you got injured as a musician, it was taboo to speak about with and there wasn't a lot of support in the medical domain, as well as the psychological domain. So um, having mental health support, um, it was difficult to tell your employer or even your teacher or your professor that you're injured because you could lose opportunities. You could lose job opportunities as well. And so it was quite a struggle. And I didn't want other people to go through what I had to when I was injured. So my injury was a little bit of um, it was like two things. So it presented itself as a repetitive strain injury but it was actually a mind body connection where it was my mental state because your mind and body connected affected uh, my body and therefore it affected the way i played and there was like a negative feedback loop so for me i needed help also on the mental health side as well as the physical nature of it um on top of that i would say that my education in my undergrad was good. However, as a performance major, your most important aspect of your education is your teacher. And my teachers and I got along really well, but I found that I wasn't getting the information that I was looking for. So there was a lot of self-study involved on my end too. And I was thinking like, wow, a lot of this information feels a little bit kept because um, sometimes in classical music, we tend to hold certain performances or certain teachers or certain interpretations kind of on a pedestal. And the way that you're kind of taught is kind of held that way too. So I was like, well, part of the issues that I was going through was, this gatekeeper of information, having repetitive strain, and I'm not having the support that I wanted. So I know a lot of people in the classical industry at that time were also going through something similar. So I wanted to give back to my community and help those who, if they are going through something similar as me, that uh, they're not alone. So that's when that all started. And that's my mission as well.
0: Nice, nice. So um, are there a lot of um accounts that speak on this issue of uh, piano and health and mental health or is it is it something that is as growing um, what's the, the current state now in the, uh, the the music world?
1: It's definitely much improved since I was in university. Um, in terms of the music side, I would say it's definitely growing it's a new industry. And it's not as well-funded or as um, well-researched as sports medicine and psychology. However, a lot of stuff in the sports medicine psychology apply directly to musicians because we're basically athletes of like the small muscles. So I would say there in terms of research of the issues with musicians in the classical music world, um, fact check me. Uh, this is not the exact number but about 85 percent of classical musicians have been or currently and continue to be injured as they are in work as they're playing and all that stuff so like the numbers are a little not just a little but it's a little high
0: yeah, um yeah. so
1: it is definitely an industry that is growing and I'm really glad at least on the social media side of things more and more physicians um, research in medicine and psychology for musicians is coming out as a platform to help educate those who are might be performers or they're still studying there's the students who are studying so it's growing it's gotten a lot better it's not as taboo and we do have more support but definitely lots of room for growth
0: so um what what style of piano do you play um and who are some of your favorite musicians? So I'm not too familiar with uh, classical music. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, what, what style do you play? Who, who are some of your favorite musicians? Um, do you like different genres of music? Or is it just primarily uh, classical music?
1: sure so my main focus is in classical music there are different like subsets or eras in classical music so there's baroque there's classical romantic and then you get into like post romanticism and, and a lot of other stuff um i would say some of my favorite musicians are martha argerich um daniel trivanoff uh some of the new ones songjin cho um i really admire his very very fine and reply refined playing um, Horowitz, some of the old greats, um, there's so many to name. Anyone from the golden age, essentially, um, for most classical musicians, those are the the people we aim to be. And in terms of different genres of music, I do love my classical music, I do love my jazz. I would like to be able to dabble in jazz a little bit more to just expand my own capabilities. Um, in terms of not playing stuff, I do like K-pop. I am a K-pop person. So oh,
0: nice, that's like nice. on the other end of the spectrum. Like who are who are some of your favorite K-pop bands or groups?
1: Um, right now, I think like everybody loves Blackpink. So that's someone that I'm listening to right now. Um, Twice, Blackpink, uh, SNSD, although they're kind of really old and like disbanded, but the, that's who I grew up with in my time. Um, yeah, I would say those top three for now.
0: Okay, cool. I, I got to check them out. I'm always uh, curious and I'm always looking for good music to listen to. Um, so let's dive into the piano world. So um, memory sports is, is a competitive world. And from what I've gathered the piano world is also very competitive, at least from what I see on TV and in film and so forth. But I imagine the world of piano being even more competitive. Um, I see musicians training for hours from a very young age or I hear the horror stories of parents yelling at their children. You need to practice. You need to practice so how competitive really is this field do you have any stories to share um could you sort of paint a picture for us of the competitive nature um in piano
1: sure thing so i would say piano can be very competitive but it's also dependent on how high you want to reach Um, Because there's a lot of pianists out there, if you are wanting to just be a local pianist and perform, then it's not as competitive as if you wanted to be like like the A-list of the entire world, you know, world-class performers. So if we're speaking on the the terms of world-class performers, very, very competitive, it's a very small group of people. Um, Training does usually begin at a very, very young age, and you'll have kids going into different conservatoires or different young musician programs at places like Juilliard and the acceptance rate can be crazy so for example Curtis Institute of Music is a very famous um, conservatory for musicians that everyone wants to go and learn from from the best their acceptance rate is two percent Harvard's acceptance rate is five percent so we all know how you know competitive Harvard is already part of the reason why Curtis has such a very low acceptance rate is that they also pay for their tuition and their living expenses and stuff so you can only provide that for so many people obviously um, on top of that one of the pathways to being a world-class musician is to enter competitions so that way you can get you um, scouted by management and then from there you start performing although that's not the only pathway but if you're going the competition route most of the competitions that you would be applying for are kind of like piano olympics in the sense that you do have everybody coming around the world competing for certain rounds and these competitions come around every three to five years just like the olympics oh
0: wow so i didn't know you're that.
1: going from you know hopefully going into a conservatoire of some sort and then your life kind of gets funneled into this competition track. So it's kind of like sports and Olympics too. If you're wanting to go that um, far into your expertise and how well you want to hone in your skills.
0: Hmm. Very, very interesting. So um, I, will, I will definitely check that out. I, I didn't know that they had uh, those types of competitions.
1: Yeah, some of the names, if anyone's interested, you can look up the Honens, H-O-N-E-N-S. That's been going on. I don't know if it's over yet, but its it's been going on this year. You've got the Tchaikovsky competition, Van Cliburn, and the Chopin competition. Those are usually the well-known ones.
0: Okay, so I'll, I'll definitely check those out. So um, I'm curious to know, in the life of a pianist, what are some of the things that you all have to memorize? Is it simply the music or is there more to it? Can you, can you paint a, a picture for us of, of the amount of material that a pianist would have to memorize?
1: I would say on the very foundational level, you just have a lot of music to memorize. You're, you're memorizing a lot of dots on a page to an extent. Um, But what things that will help you memorize that a little bit more easily is knowing your music history, knowing your theory, because that's going to help um, enrich your memory and It also informs you on how you're going to be interpreting that music, which is also important with the memorizing portion of it too. If you are a pianist who's collaborative so you're working with singers you're working with other instruments, or you might be playing for an opera production. The other things that you need to be knowledgeable in and eventually you're going to memorize it, whether you like it or not, is the text. um, In the music. And they're often in other languages. So it might be in German, it might be in French, it might be in Italian. So if you don't know those languages, if you're going to become a collaborative musician, it's often recommended that you study one of those languages as well. And then if you're in any of those stage productions, then you need to know your cues. And like, where are these, where are your um, actors going to be? How is your... Uh, conductor going to cue you and as a conductor you also need to know like where and when am i going to cue and how how am i going to express certain things in a certain way to help my musicians get the music across so beyond the dots on the page there's a whole bunch of other things involved as well
0: wow so you mentioned about um, foreign languages is that so the musician would be able to interpret or capture? the emotion of the text?
1: Yes, absolutely. So if you are learning something in the texts in German, you definitely want to translate it, understand what is the poetry speaking about. So that way when you're expressing it, whether it's through the music or through your bodily gestures, if the word says mad, you don't wanna look like you have a smile on your face. So it's things like that, that help inform what is going on. And sometimes in music, the music will reflect what the text is trying to say. So if the text has something about water, then the music itself will also have probably more arpeggios or passages that are more flowy. So that can also help structure in your brain, and your memory, it's like, okay, yeah, this is the place where I'm gonna have those arpeggios. This is the place where the chord is going to change specifically on this one word because it paints a picture about being happy or sad or bittersweet or something like that.
0: Hmm, It's interesting. And you also mentioned about the body. So when I when I think of piano music, I I typically think of the music. But you mentioned also that there's a bodily expression to capture. So it's really in a way like a performance. So yeah, I didn't I didn't uh, think about that. So you yeah, you also know. so Go so ahead, you also think off. about how your body is going to move in each passage to make sure that you represent the emotion of of the piece?
1: Yeah, I think depending on the type of musician you are, sometimes it comes more naturally for others. Sometimes we do choreograph things for showmanship's sake. Um, 30% of what you hear is actually what you see. So as a pianist, where it's difficult for us to actually manipulate our instrument as um, in comparison to, say, the voice or the violin, um, some of the things we do are a bit like an illusion in order to convey a certain message visually. So, yes, if you're kind of like a music purist, um, we should be able to hear the emotion you're expressing just by the sound, if it was just a recording. But if you're going to pay someone, and you're watching someone play, and they're playing something that is fiendishly difficult, it's devilishly like technical, and it's, I don't know, let's say like Liszt, Dante, Sonata, there's a whole storyline there, and you are playing like the most stiff expressionless person ever there's a mismatch between how difficult it sounds and the thrill of that and seeing the pianist struggle. Sometimes people will go along with that type of train of thought versus someone who's just, you know, if you're not going to express anything with your body, I might as well just listen to a CD. Why come and see you? Hmm. So there there are different trains of thoughts with that, but yes, how we present ourselves is sometimes something we think about.
0: Hmm. That's good. So memorizing the music, um, being able to understand the emotion of a piece. So um, considering the amount of things that you all have to memorize, uh, what are some memory techniques that pianists use to master some of the things that you have mentioned?
1: In terms of mastering, even whether it's technical or a memory thing, I think for Anything you're memorizing the idea of doing it in small bits is very helpful. So we do a lot of chunking um, we work in small sections and then from there there's a lot of repetition so playing it over and over and over again, not only for the ear, but also for your muscle memory to start to build because piano playing in any any instrumentalist. Any vocalist a lot of it is also in muscle memory, you have to program things into your body, so it frees up your mental space and your mental RAM so you can focus on other things like how am I going to express this. Um, How am I going to be spontaneous so on and so forth so muscle memory repetition chunking space repetition. um, Knowing your structure of the piece so the storyline can be really helpful, so you have a pathway to. Go as you're playing and you remember oh yeah i'm in like the fifth page and at this fifth page I have to change on this one specific chord, or else i'm going to loop myself back to the beginning. And we don't want to go through that again, so there is that map, so those are the very practical things, but as a pianist I like to think that I have about five domains of memory that I want to make sure I know very well. So the first one is oral, so A-U-R-A-L, how it sounds. If I don't know what it sounds like, there is no way I'm probably gonna be able to memorize it because the ear is gonna help guide a lot of things. Then from there, there's the kinesthetic. So not only is it the muscle memory that is going to help remember things, but even simple things like, how does this chord feel? Does it feel like a triad? Does it feel like a dominant seventh? Is it a certain inversion? How is my hand shape going to be? Where is my body going to be in my spatial area of the piano in order to help me play? So if I know, oh, in this part of the piano, I have to be on the right side a little bit more because I'm on the upper end, that already gives me a lot of clues that if I were to some reason have some random blank, it's something to latch onto if something in my brain I can't grab onto anymore. I mean, oh yeah, I'm on the top end of the piano. Oh yeah, I'm in this section of the piano and it's in this section of the piece. Oh yeah, it's gonna go into my next one which is the theoretical memory, which is the theory of basically the grammar of music. And it's gonna be a major chord here. It's gonna be a minor chord here. What's the chord progression? Basically, what are the arrangement of chords that can help you kind of figure your way around things if you have a memory mishap? So you can think of theory as basically the sentence like mm-hmm. i went to the mall if you were trying to recite a bunch of phrases that i went to but you don't know the grammar is the subject or your destination needs to be there then you won't know which category to pull words out of even if you need to make something up to make it sound like it's something um, the next one is visual so what do my hands look like when i'm looking at the keys is it closer into the keyboard? Is it out? Am I going to be going away on the opposite ends of the piano? I'm going to be in the center of the piano. Also, visually, like, where am I in the music? Am I on page five at the bottom? Am I on page 10 in the middle? So that can help kind of sectionalize your brain a little bit. Um, the other one is the emotional memory you can store a lot of information just through emotions in general. So remembering this passage, oh yeah, this is a passage that is very bashful or it's very um, hyper or it's very angry. Well, if you are remembering, oh, something is angry, the way you're going to touch the piano, the articulation, you're going to use the amount of pressure or weight, or the way that you're going to be approaching the instrument is going to be different. Now, if you're approaching the instrument differently, that's going to start to trigger your muscle memory. If, uh, if anything was to go. So you can start to link things up that in case you have a memory blank or a memory mishap, you can grab onto something and continue.
0: Wow, that's, that's fascinating. So it seems like a lot of things are, are going on there. And I like um, the way you described like your relationship to the piano, like the language that you use, paying attention to your to your hands, the shape, how it feels, and it also seems as if you're also um, you're anchoring your your physical body to parts of the passage, which sort of reminds me to, of the memory palace, uh, where you have uh, a mental space, and you're anchoring ideas in this space. But it seems with the piano as if you're anchoring uh, ideas. On the the piano itself, um, so yeah, I I really I really in, enjoy that and just the the multifaceted nature of of memory. So, uh, thanks thanks for sharing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I love that you brought up the memory palace too, because in a way, I kind of use my body as a memory palace that might not be so much of like where it is in the music, but sometimes. I if there's a technically challenging passage and I need to remember that I have to keep my elbow relaxed if I just focus on my elbow and know where I am on that passage it opens up like a mind space. That allows me to execute that passage, but if my elbow gets tense then my mind also gets a little bit like congested and then i can't execute so there are times where when i'm trying to remember a certain passage if i need to play it right on the fly in front of a teacher or something i do access my body i'm like oh yeah it's this is the part of the shoulder that i need to do like this weird thing and then therefore i can access that so i'm glad you brought that up as well too
0: yeah and and i like that you also mentioned about muscle memory so um i i open a safe um so i have a safe that i open up but the the strange thing is I don't know the password to the safe. Um, my body, my hands just knows what it is. And sometimes um, when I'm just immediately interrupted, like before I'm about to open up the safe or something happens, I totally forget like where to where to put my hands, what is what is the code? So is that sort of your experience too with uh, muscle memory and the, the the piano?
1: Yeah, absolutely great parallel to draw because that is oftentimes where a lot of Young beginners with piano, um, or those who are not as experienced with performing get caught. So just like you, you're about to put in the code, something happens, maybe someone calls your name, you're you've messed up the sequence in the middle, and then you have a blank And, and only way to access that is to start the whole sequence right again from the beginning. And then you kind of just let your mind go blank and you let your hands do what they need to do. So oftentimes young students will be playing, they get nervous or something happens, they miss a note or something, the sequence just unravels itself and they can't continue. So they have to go back to the beginning and then now they're terrified. So if your brain is like terrified, it's not going to, be able to remember anything. So that's why muscle memory is super helpful, but it's also going to be the first thing that's going to leave you in a time of memory lapse or something. So that's why we need like the ear and the brain and the visual and the emotion to kind of scaffold that. If that was to happen that you can grab onto and the memory can then your muscle memory can then continue to surf on something.
0: Mm, That's beautiful. It it sort of reminds me of trees. I don't know if you've ever studied trees, but like when one tree is suffering and it's down uh, other trees uh, helps the, the other tree that that's suffering. Um, so I, I like the, uh, the, the multifaceted nature of, of memory. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. like a a community in a way. Um, so, uh, let's move to the area of training and discipline, um, in the life of a pianist. Um, I think, uh, I think memory training um, uh, is is also uh, dealing with uh, discipline and motivation, and I I wanted to to like speak to others from different fields to to glean some some insight when trying to pursue a craft or if, if anything in any field. Um, we can face difficulties and challenges, so I'm just curious to to know your your thoughts on on some of these questions. So um, I noticed in several of your videos, you give uh, book recommendations for pianists on technique or for developing musical expression. So um, in memory training, there are some who just like to read books on memory, or they, they search forms for hours uh, on different Uh, techniques and systems or they watch youtube videos but they're slow to actually put into practice the techniques and the theory uh presented so does this also happen for the pianists um if so in your opinion what is the role of of musical education of of knowledge acquisition um and the ideal balance between theory and practice.
1: I think even beyond just like musicians, if you have an interest in something, there will come a point where you get so sucked down into like a rabbit hole of information that you you just like your brain is so hungry for information that you get overwhelmed. And so it then becomes very difficult to sort through that and put it into actual practice so for those who you know love reading the books love going on youtube and doing all that stuff but never really getting a chance to step in front of the piano and actually put it into action um don't feel bad it's it's pretty normal especially if you're a self-learner so i think there's nothing wrong with having that curiosity and just ingesting as much as you can for the intellect the balance of where the education comes in is providing structure structure and also um, accountability and goals. Because if you don't have that structure or that track to kind of go on, then searching for more information and trying to consume information becomes a place of safety. You feel like you're learning, you've got all this information, but you haven't actually put it into the body. You haven't actually experienced it. You haven't actually Gone into the nitty gritty and connected all the dots of this floating data you have in your head. So, I think for the education there, it's to provide also structure, goal setting, and pacing. And I think as a teacher, you also need to balance when you're going to nourish that intellect to help with the actual practice of things and vice versa. So, for example, if you are like a an initial beginner you're not going to inundate them with too much theoretical knowledge. They don't need that right now it's going to hold them back. So you might just drop them into the pool and be like let's practice this Let's actually touch the piano. Let's figure it out as we go, and you need to have that scaffolding foundation for them. But um, as you start to have more of that uh, physical foundation built and you're getting more advanced, you're going to need to scaffold that with theoretical knowledge and some more uh, information um, for the intellect. So there is that balance of where the student is at or where you are as well to remember that if it's getting in your way, don't use it yet. Hmm. Whatever gives you progress, go.
0: Yeah. So what, what would you say to a person who doesn't like to learn theory or to read or to, to gain knowledge on techniques? So, uh, just sort of comparing it to the the language uh, language learning. Um, there's some people who don't like to study grammar. Um, they just want to be in the language because grammar is boring, and they can lose their motivation and then eventually stop even learning a language. Um, do do you? So so how do you deal with? Um, knowledge is important but also um dealing with that in in the realm of motivating a student to uh, for a person who doesn't like to study and to learn about techniques so how do you nurture and cultivate one's motivation in that regard
1: i would say that This is like a a general blanket statement, which kind of feels like a non-answer, but it's really dependent on the student. I know everyone hates it when I said that, (laughs) because it's like, well, that doesn't tell me anything. But it is really dependent on the student, because there will come a time where the student is going to realize that if I immerse myself in, let's say, language acquisition, or even if it's just piano, because music is a type of language in and of itself, there will come a time where I'm going to hit a wall. And at that wall, I may need to seek out other forms of information in order to get through this wall or block that I have, and that might be I need to learn a little bit about grammar. Now, maybe you don't need to tell them like okay go grab this grammar textbook and spend 20 hours learning this grammar like that might not be the way that they need to receive and they will feel overwhelmed, but you might give them a little bit of a nugget that helps them get over that a little bit a so step by step so. One, the student has to be receptive to begin with. You have to realize at some point, like, I actually do need to study a little bit about grammar in order if I want to get better. It has to be something they want. Um, number two, give them that information in a way that they're going to accept it. Otherwise, there's no point. So if we, let's say, talk about it in a piano perspective, um, there are some students that I have that just want to dive right into a piece. They don't care about what the chords are. They don't care about what the scales are. They don't care about any of that stuff, but they are going to have a much more difficult time learning that piece because the way that they're going about it um, is not like chunked information. So if I was to then transfer that into language, it's equivalent to someone seeing the word cat and be like, oh, it's cat versus someone who didn't know anything about grammar or English or anything. And they'll be like, okay, A, B, C, C, A. An a, and then A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that's a T, oh, C, A, T, oh, cat. So you're still going to get there, but they're going to be like, this is taking too long. I need a faster thing. They'll be like, well, you need to learn a little bit about theory. And you, you connect the dots for them. They start to learn, oh, there's C major chords, there's G major chords, there's scales over here. I'm starting to see patterns. And they start to see the benefit of knowing at least a little bit about grammar or theory. And sometimes that's enough to spark them. And they get motivated to dive in on their own even more but in now summarizing and wrapping that all up one it's dependent on the student and how receptive they are and two um it in a way that they're going to be able to digest it
0: Mm. that's very well said thank you (laughs) yeah good job that that like struck me Mm. um so from my observation it seems that those who are are great at their craft that are world-class tend to be obsessed. Like there is this blazing passion and and they tend to train for what what seems to be endless hours. But sometimes this comes at a cost and perhaps it's it's one social life um that they' that they say no to to certain things or or gatherings. So um how can we be or or, or first, do you think this is a, a good thing and and how can we be more mindful of our social lives while maintaining a commitment to excellence? or do you do you think this balance is, even possible, or do you think sometimes the wisest and healthiest thing to do is to settle with mediocrity in one's craft, or should there just be that select few who sacrifice everything in order to uh, maintain an extremely high level? So, what are your what are your thoughts?
1: Um, as an artist i'm going to kind of come at this from a both a human and artist standpoint and my first thing that i'm going to say is you are as a human we are social beings and as an artist you need an enriched life to be able to express something mm. so you do need a social life that's what i'm going to say because we're social creatures and you need an enriched life now everybody is different some people need more social contact compared to others. Some people are so obsessed and love and so impassioned about their craft that they're able to find some type of social connection through the music. Maybe the music is about, uh, maybe it's like an opera and they're about different characters. So they can find some type of, I'm not going to necessarily say like pseudo connection, but in a way that it is um, to other people. Um, The other one is Sometimes, if you are someone who wants to be really good at their craft um, but you also need the social interaction, as a piano soloist, that's going to be a bit more difficult but there's also other avenues where you could be a collaborative pianist and you work with other people so you still have that social life built into your work. You could be working on opera productions, again, that's also going to be built into your work so that's how you get that balance in there. But one thing that I really like that you brought up is about the sacrifice to get to a high degree of mastery in any skill. Yeah, there's going to be sacrifice. Now, I can't speak on behalf of those who are at a super extreme level, whether it's in piano or something else, that to them, maybe missing a party is not a sacrifice to them because they love their art and their skills so much that they want to build on it might not be a sacrifice to them. Whereas for someone else who might need to have that social interaction, it's like, wow, like I need to go to that party. So sacrifice is also defined by the person themselves. But I think we can also say that, yeah, to get to a certain, to get anything in life, it's not a free world. There must be a price that's paid and you have to then decide, do I, is this moment, do I value, having that social life more than practicing the piano and you have to find that balance for yourself now when you have balance remember that balance is not necessarily 50-50 balance can sometimes be 90% on something 10% just to keep the thing level and that's going to be different for everybody um so to, again to wrap that all out um we're social creatures, and as artists, you do need some type of human interaction of some sort that's going to vary for everybody. And I think it's also important on just a human level that social interaction can also take you away from burnout and just socializing with other people. Just sometimes you don't need to be in the practice room eight hours a day, you need to talk to someone and you need to get that stuff out of your system. And that can curb you away from the stress of practicing that can create burnout as well so there you go that's a very roundabout answer for you (laughs) Mm.
0: yeah that's 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 good 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 stuff so in developing any craft there is this human tendency to compare ourselves with others or to feel jealous or to feel down so in the memory world we can we could see others win a competition or we can see them on a, a talent show on, on national TV or someone breaking a, a world record. Um, and we can, we can look at those things or we can uh, see someone who has been training for the same amount of time, yet they are light years ahead of us. And we're like, what, what am I doing wrong? Is this really for me? And there could be this, this feeling like, uh, like wanting to quit, wanting to throw in the towel to feel discouraged. So in what ways does this happen in the life of a pianist? What types of comparisons do they tend to make? And do you have any advice for those who struggle in this area of comparison or feeling discouraged what type of mentality should one have
1: so the the art of comparison is definitely something that musicians have to master i think it's kind of built into the classical culture in a way because We hold the score to such a high, almost sacred degree of how well interpreted it can be and how truthful you can be to it that we get compared not only in our interpretation, but we also get compared on our technical ability. Because if you have a high technical ability, you can express better and there's nuances and stuff like that. So there's that on that level in terms of classical musicians having some type of comparison, but we also get compared to other musicians from the past and upcoming musicians as well. So thanks to the recording age, we get to hear the great masters of the golden age. And that's what we aspire for. But we are also held up to that standard constantly and now you have the digital age where anybody can listen to these recordings and have their own opinion and then your interpretation your art gets pitted against that there's no running away from that you'll go into the youtube comments and they'll be like oh i like its interpretation at bar 53 so much better than someone so doing or you know things like that and it's just sometimes as an artist it's like can we not nitpick like <laughs> calm down i see you want to be intellectual and elitist but like this is also just art you know so we do get Um, compared that way as we're trying to learn from the greats it's natural to compare yourself and just have a checkpoint like what are they doing that i'm not doing how can i get there and then there's also like you said before sometimes there are people who are ahead of you or you start the same um time but they're ahead of you we have prodigies we compare ourselves to prodigies all the time how is this four-year-old able to play a concerto and i haven't even started i've been learning this for 20 years so yeah we we get a lot of that it's definitely the art of comparison to not discourage yourself demoralize yourself in any way and so when it comes to the mentality you have to be objective i think that's one thing being objective about what you see where you are at and accepting that too is the first stage and then the way You speak about that. Your self-talk is integral to making sure that you don't wind up in the pathway where it's like, maybe I'm not good enough. Why can they do this? Maybe I need to quit. Maybe this is not for me. So let's say I'm seeing someone's performance and I love the way that they were able to express um, a certain section of the music and their technique was phenomenal. Now I can say very objectively, their scales were very clear. Their use of pedal was really well nuanced. And their crescendos were not harsh or any of that sort. So that's very objective. And then I can compare it to myself and say, oh yeah, I probably do want more clarity when I'm playing certain notes in order to express this thing because it worked out so well, how can I achieve that? Now notice when I'm saying these things, I'm not saying it from a place of trying to guilt or to shame myself. It would sound something like this. Oh, they have such great skills. It's so clear. Why can't I do that? That immediately disempowers you because now you're like there's something wrong with me I can't play scales. like no honey it's okay they play scales well you can do the same, too, and there were. Two quotes that I've kind of use when I wind myself up in that position by accident or you know we're humans we're going to disempower ourselves at some point or another, and one thing that i've learned and I don't know the exact quotes i'm going to kind of paraphrase it but it's not necessarily that you yourself, you have a problem or you have an issue or you're not good enough, or you have some type of disability or something. Um, for the most part, when it comes to piano anyways, you also have to remember that they might be able to make certain creative decisions or be able to execute something technically well or something simply because they came across certain experiences certain levels of knowledge or something that gave them this pasture of stuff to work with in order to perform a certain way. And it might just be that you didn't have that little bit of knowledge. Now, if you can get this knowledge, you might be able to play your scales really well too. So that also detaches your self-worth from your art and from your ability to do something. And it puts you in a place of empowerment that's like, oh, I just need to go and figure out how to get the scale done now that's very easy to do find a teacher do some research ask the person who plays the scales that well what they did and then now you can too so yeah comparing is important but the way you use it it's a tool use it well so that's one thing that keeps me out of the whole like self-worth guilt shame thing that comes in Um, the other one is also accepting your limitations is also part of it I know earlier I said like, oh, you might not have disabilities or things like that, and anything in the world is possible to a degree, yeah. Um, but sometimes like as a pianist, I have small hands. There's only gonna be so much I can do with the small hands. Someone who has larger hands can be able to play with more, more relaxed technique. Well, okay, my hands are smaller. I can either be like, oh, why my hands so small? Why can't I do this? Oh, what was me? Well, I can be like, okay, yeah, my hands are small. Well, is there another way that I can approach this um, how can I figure out how to relax my hands so it's easier to do, which is going to help you master other techniques as well. Optionally it can be like okay yeah I might not be able to play this repertoire, because I simply cannot reach it. But because I have small hands damn am I good at really playing nitty gritty technical things that are close together, because I don't have as difficult time traveling between the keys so is there a repertoire that I can play that matches what I can do, my body is able to do or within my limitations. And now maybe I get to be known as someone who has really perfect scales all the time. And someone's going to pine after that too. In the same way that I'm going to pine after someone who has a large hand and can reach more notes. So also accept where you are, what your limitations are and be very objective and not shaming in the way you speak to yourself. And I think Mm. that's a really good window into learning how to use comparison in a healthy way
0: hmm that's that's good stuff good stuff so sometimes memory training can be boring uh, we have to do speed drills or we have to train disciplines that we don't like but we know that we have to do and we know that it's necessary to develop our skills or to compete at a certain level and um, for the sake of being well-rounded Um, so are there things in practicing the piano that a lot of pianists consider boring, but nevertheless do it because they know it is necessary for perfecting the craft? If so, what are some of those piano exercises and how could one do something when they don't feel like it or push through, uh, boredom uh, let's say Uh, do you have any advice for that
1: absolutely there are plenty of things as pianists that we find absolutely boring one of them sometimes for many people is simply theory just learning theory is really boring we like the creative stuff a lot more like how can I phrase this how can I make this sound pretty you know there is that domain other things that musicians might find um, very boring is just technically learning your scales and your chords and drilling all those things um repetitive drilling can be really boring too sometimes uh some students um and even professionals slow practice can be very boring and slow practice is as the name says you practice slowly so for example if you're trying to play a scale really quickly you might have to really focus in and do some really finite dialing in of Physical technique or oral technique or any of that stuff and you're gonna be playing it like da, da da and Really slow and people find that very painful, but slow practice is a really good way to practice Rhythm training for some can be really really boring as well because it's it can be kind of monotonous There's no creativity involved So for those who are not familiar with like music stuff rhythm training allows you to take a certain passage and we play certain types of rhythms with it to help um, us to memorize it to help us learn some certain techniques or just be able to mold our hands or our technique around it more easily. So a little example could be, let's say you have a melody that's like da da. Oh, let's do it in number. So one two three, one two three, one two three. Let's say that's the passage. Um, maybe we're learning how to relax or we're trying to do different combinations to help our memory be even more solid. We could have a certain rhythm that we use where we stop on a certain note longer than others so for example the first permutation would be long short short one two three one two three one then you do the next combination which could probably be like a short short long one two three one two three one two three and you do that like ten times before you move on to the next one so now we have the next permutation which is two the middle one is going to be the long one now this changes the whole pattern you get one two three one two three one two three one two and you it just changes everything so your brain has to kind of rubik's cube the whole thing around some people love that some people hate that it's very dependent on everybody but i would say for musicians anything that doesn't involve some level of creativity we like abhor to some degree (laughs) Um, so to push through boredom is emotional management can you manage your emotions and how are you going to do that? Because quite frankly, if you're going to do anything worthwhile in this world, there's going to be something that is boring. And I'm going to tell you, yeah, it's boring and it sucks. Let's just accept that. Because if you don't accept that, you're going to be stuck at the resistance stage. You're just like, oh, it's so boring. I don't want to do it. Why is it so boring? And then you just don't get anything done because all you need to do is just get it done. So just accept, yeah, this is boring. Now we can start to move and be like, what can we do about it? Because so you have choices. You go, okay, this is boring. I'm not going to ever do it. Okay, then you're not going to achieve your goal. If that's if you valuing not doing it more than achieving your goal is, then don't do it. I'm not going to force you to do anything. The other thing could be, okay, it is boring. And I need to manage my emotion around that and I find this boring. Get curious. Why do I find this boring? Because if I can figure out why it's boring, then I might be able to figure out, well how can i circumvent that maybe i find it boring because it's monotonous there's no creativity involved okay cool i can work with that where can i find creativity in this monotony so sometimes people like the rhythms because it changes things up and your brain has to you know do that rubik's Cube thing or maybe if we are practicing those rhythms and you find them boring well what if you do the rhythms but we also add in their articulation playing notes longer or shorter or a different type of touch. Then it's like, okay, I like doing articulation. I like working on my staccatos. I like figuring out how to play things nice and easily. So through the repetition, I'm also learning the skill. So I'm kind of bypassing it. So a lot of times when I'm talking to students or even for myself, if I come across an obstacle like boredom there is that saying where it's like, oh, if you find a problem or obstacle um, that points in the right direction and you got to go through that obstacle. And so we're like, okay, we're going to push through that boredom, We're going to do it. Well, mostly that's just resistance and you're going to wind up in the same place where you're going to be bored. You're going to be doing that activity, but you're so bored that your brain is not going to take in anything. So sometimes pushing through is not the right thing. If you have an obstacle, it's something that's in your way. So walk around it.
0: Mm. right that's good find
1: a way to circumvent it around sometimes your obstacle is so big it's a mountain you can't walk around it okay then get a helicopter and fly over it (laughs) get some dynamite and blow through it dig underneath it your your obstacle will tell you which direction you might need to go but that does not mean you need to keep pushing against it sometimes just walk around it Mm. so find a way to circumvent your boredom.
0: Mm. preach it (laughs) that's what they say in the church yeah yeah that that's uh that's good good stuff uh so I'm I'm kind of curious of what these drills actually look like in a a sched in in one schedule so do they do drills every day or like every other day how long are the drills how do they organize what type of drills i would do on certain days what does that look like exactly
1: i think first off is you have to take into consideration where that person is on their journey so for example if you're a beginner there's going to be a lot more drilling than maybe someone at an advanced level on certain things so if you're a beginner you might be drilling on a lot more of these scales and the chords and the very fundamentals And that might take up your beginning of your practice session. So it also warms up your your muscles and things like that. Um, As you get more advanced, you might not need to play your scales every single day like you were when you were a beginner, you might be drilling a specific passage in your music. And in that case, it'd be like, okay, from like bars 45 to 50, I need to drill um, my accuracy, my dexterity on landing on the specific chord. And from there, getting very specific on what you're trying to achieve, you can then start to say, okay, for me as a musician, I know I have it in my system, if I can drill it seven times in a row, never missing, and in order for me to feel safe that in the future when I'm on stage I'm not going to miss it, generally that might take me three days of seven in a row drilling. So you have to kind of take in consideration what your goals are and keep in mind that drilling is a tool, is it the tool that's going to help you. get to where you want to achieve and then when you're structuring this in your actual practice regime, I like to take into consideration. Um, what my mental capacity is going to be, so if I know that our drilling a particular passage is going to be absolutely mentally draining. I am not going to save that for the end because I'm probably going to be already really tired. I might put it as like my second task because I'm going to need a little bit of a warm up. Sometimes my drilling, maybe I do need to like work on my scales and I might put that at the beginning and spend maybe 10 minutes or however long uh, it is to limber up. So, yes, you need to drill. Yes, you need to have structure, but also put it in a way that works for you and in the passage that you're working on. At the end of the day, these are all tools. So if drilling is a hammer, use the hammer when you're going to use a nail and hit it an on a nail. Don't use the hammer when you're trying to screw in a screw. It's not going to work. Hmm. So you also need to know yourself in the art of practicing of when to do these drills and how long and for things like that.
0: So is the art of practice and training well researched in the sense that there is a science behind it and, and what types of drills, how long? Um, is it well-researched in that world? Because in, in memory training, uh, it's the, the sport is, is somewhat new. And um, I, I can't find one book that talks about, okay, you do these. So is there a sort of like, a, uh, like a, a, an exact science to it? Or is it just a matter of experimentation and just examining your own results?
1: I'm going to say that I wish... I really wish that there was an exact science as much as it was in sports, psychology and medicine. You know, there's so much research that goes in there. So as a let's say, if you're a runner, you know that there are specific drills that can help you with this particular muscle group. That's going to help you lift your leg faster and longer or whatever. I think there are drills in music that do the exact same thing. But because we don't have as much scientific backing, it doesn't get um, it doesn't get into a very rigid regime. So a lot of the drills that we do come from years and years of experience that's been handed down from us from our previous teachers, as well as molding with our own experience. So, for example, if there is someone who wants to get clearer, faster scales because everyone wants clearer, faster scales. Yeah, there are drills rhythms are going to really help you learning, um, having certain drills that help your finger or your hand. Uh, go into the key faster and release faster is going to be helpful in clearing up your scales. But then there's also, because it's such a holistic thing, you have to also concentrate not only on the fingers and how you play them, how is your wrist going to be acting that way? How is your elbow going to be doing certain things? So there are little drills that you can do to help open up and unlock those things for you but in terms of like a one size fits all not all the time because everyone's body is a little bit different everybody's way of processing how they even approach the instrument is already going to affect the way the drill works so yes there are some things that we do that help um that are almost like a regime but it's not as set in stone as say sports
0: mm. Okay. Got you. Got you. So I watched one of your videos. Uh, It was called The Art of Practicing, in which you reviewed uh, Bruiser's book. Um, You talk about the curiosity in one's practice in order to keep it fresh and to learn at a deeper level. You encourage uh, this habit of asking ourselves questions. Um, What should the fingering be in this bar? Or what would happen if I started the phrase a little bit softer and help my crescendo to the end? In your opinion, should this type of questioning and exploration occur in every session or when we happen to feel resistant to training? And when you do these types of experimentations, is it in a structured way, like for X amount of days, I'm going to play this way and track my results and compare it with my previous weeks, or is it more spontaneous? So how do you structure your your curiosity? In your opinion, should there be boundaries?
1: I think as an artist, you need curiosity it is one of the fundamental skills that you need so should it show up in sessions where we're working on our craft absolutely it needs to or else it's very difficult to work on art because art is also a little bit of exploration of oneself and also the things you're trying to express and then as an artist if you are not curious even kind of as a person it's difficult to be an artist so for me I advocate curiosity not only in one's work but also in one's life it's through curiosity and that thirst for more knowledge that enriches your life and your inner world which is going to inevitably also enrich your art so yeah curiosity all the time everywhere that's kind of what I advocate um, but is there a time and place for curiosity absolutely there are some times where I step into the practice room and it's like I just need 30 minutes of just monotonous drilling if I am to You know do something for the next day or maybe i have a performance and i just need to drill 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 drill. then yeah do that that is part of your job drill do what needs to get done um do i structure my curiosity yes and no are there boundaries in curiosity yes and no so curiosity is the thing that helps open you up to experiences it helps open you up to answers it helps open you up to other questions other discoveries so you can't necessarily structure what curiosity opens you up to because you don't know where you're going to go. But it's no, not knowing and the learning that you end up in a deeper rabbit hole of some sort. So from the findings that curiosity finds, it's hard to structure. But before that, you can have a structure in which you use the curiosity. against Curiosity is another tool. So use the tools where appropriate use the hammer when you need it use the screwdriver when you need it so if I know I'm going to be drilling something and I absolutely cannot get curious and be like how can I change this phrasing what if I put a crescendo here because that'll completely derail my goal of like just get it into the fingers then no I will restrict curiosity that's not the time for it At the same time, I might be like, okay, I'm not drilling. I'm working on section A of the piece, which is like, let's say, bar 1 to 16. I've already put a boundary on curiosity as to where I can explore and how. I'm going to kind of close that in a little bit and be, I'm going to be curious about the phrasing. How can I end this particular phrase here? How can I start this particular phrase here? What happens if I do this? And then what goes from there? Is it going to be more expressive? Is it going to get my message across more? But I have put some boundaries on how far in the piece I'm going to take it, so at least I can be productive elsewhere. But I might also put more boundaries in the sense that I don't want to be exploring with curiosity so far that I lose sight of where home is, what was my initial goal. So I might limit it to be I'm going to explore phrasing only in how I end my phrases. Now, if I find a discovery that oh if I end my phrase in a certain way it starts my next phrase in a different way. I'm going to, you know, check in on myself and be mindful. Is it okay to go forward with that? I'm not going to derail myself. If I'm going to derail myself, that's fine. I'm going to write it down and I can save that for tomorrow to go and take a look at, depending on how cramped on time or how free in my practice session I want to be um in terms of curiosity kind of like regimenting it and like oh i'm gonna be curious for this week and then i'm gonna be curious mixing <laughs> and compare i think that's totally possible you just want to make sure that you don't pigeonhole yourself so much into curiosity that it suffocates it sometimes you can be like i'm going to be curious for seven days and it's just gonna be on fingering like you're gonna bored of that at some point like the first hour you know so you have to be flexible as a human and how you use your tools too.
0: Mm. Mm, that's good. That's good. How could one become more intentional in training? Do you have one specific goal when working on a piece? Like I'm only going to focus on this musical aspect and nothing else. Or do you have three to four goals in mind at practice what is your approach to active training, and do you keep a journal um, to to document uh,
1: your findings? Um, so to be more intentional in training, I think the two foundational aspects number one is mindfulness. If you do not have mindfulness, you not you cannot be deliberate in anything you do because you don't even know what you're doing.
0: So so, so what what is what is mindfulness?
1: Mindfulness is, is being aware and noticing objectively what is happening, whether it is how you play the keys, what's going on in the music, um, how your mental and emotional state is, because that's going to affect it. And just being aware because you can practice drills like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And you can do that 20 times, but you might not even be paying attention because your brain is not there. Your mind is not full of the thing you're working on. Your your mind is less of that. It might be like, oh, you're doing one, two, three, one, two, three, but you're like thinking about lunch. You know, mm-hmm. you need to be full of whatever it is you're doing. That's why it's being mindful. Have your mind full of something. So hopefully it's the task you're on. Um, and then also in the mindfulness, it's also not only about how you're entering something, like how you're playing a scale, but also circling back and being like, did I do what I intended to do? Did I play the scale quietly? If you weren't even listening to what you were playing, you will not even be able to evaluate that, which means you're not going to be deliberate or intentional with what you're doing. You just played something, but you don't know what happened. You might as well have not done it. So you'd be like, okay, I play the scale. You listen to it as you're playing it. You ask yourself, okay, did I achieve my goal? Did I play it quietly? No. Okay, then what am I going to do about that? I'm going to try it again and maybe I'll make my fingers lighter. See if that happens. You form that feedback loop. So that's intentional, deliberate practice. And the next thing that I think is important when it comes to being intentional in training is making your making sure you ask yourself intentional questions. Because if you're like playing a scale, you play it and you're like, I wonder what I'm going to have for lunch. <laughs> you're not going to get anything done. But if you ask yourself, okay, did I achieve my goal? That's an intentional question. Did I actually play it quietly? Were the notes even in the sound? Those are intentional questions, keeps you on the track. kind of making some sense so far
0: so so is this something that you intentionally do like I you have a notepad and you have these are all of the questions and I'm going to ask myself before my practice session or is it something so built in you that it just comes as a habit or is it is something that you had to develop over time this type of mindfulness to practice I don't know uh meditation or how how do you get into this state of i'm going to be intentional
1: decision just tell yourself you're going to be intentional if you don't make that decision <laughs> you're not even opening the door that's the thing for some people it's going to be a different way of operating in your mental space because you have to detach yourself from your own thoughts and notice that you have thoughts That if you're playing, you're not focusing on what you're playing. You're thinking about lunch and dinner and things like that. So things like meditation can be helpful that some people might use. It's very dependent on everybody. Deliberate practice is part of the art of practicing. And therefore, it is a skill that you can develop. So yes, you have to practice that. Are they questions that I like write down before? Not really, because I think it comes along naturally in the process. So for example, let's say you're trying to memorize... um, a series of digits let's say if you just go i'm going to memorize a series of digits well that's not intentional practice because you haven't set yourself a very achievable goal is it going to be oh i'm going to memorize a series numbers of digits within five minutes okay so you don't might not have a game plan necessarily because this might be new so you try give yourself five minutes you try to memorize it it works it doesn't but those are the intentional questions what worked if it worked, if something in there worked, you're going to keep that for the next session. What didn't? You might be like, oh, you know, maybe I took too large to the chunks of numbers. Okay, so next time I'm going to take smaller chunks and see what that's like. So there's a little bit of kind of feedback loop stuff. There's a little bit of experimentation. But the questions are going to kind of come naturally so long as you come in with an intention or like a goal or something deliberate and you also circle back to it with whatever result you gave yourself so it's a very scientific kind of method in a way
0: Mm. I like that I like when you said you have to decide you have to decide
1: yeah and so that's why I keep journals I do journal a lot Um, I always go into my practice session knowing what I'm going to achieve simply because I've already written out my goals from the previous one. So let's say I finish a practice session. I'm going to write down, okay, what worked, what didn't, um, some discoveries that are insightful that I definitely want to keep. Um, and then what am what's my next game plan. So then that way, when I go back into the practice room, I open up the book, I already have my game plan. I'm going to practice this, this, and this Because a lot of times part of the reason why people don't like practicing is because they don't know what to do. They don't have a goal. They don't have some type of a system or a structure. So once you get that out of the way, when it's fresh from the previous day of like what you need to work on, it's much easier to just sit down and get your job done. Hmm.
0: I like that. So I'm a person of many interests. Um. So one day I want to study urban planning and architecture. And uh, the next day I want to be an Assyriologist and study cuneiforms and then uh, the next day, I want to be a film director or a poet, and I have all of these uh, competing passions, and I'm pulled by these various interests. And sometimes as a result, I may have periods in which I fail to train as I ought in order to perfect the craft of, of memory. So, uh, you too seem uh, to be like a, a person of, of many interests. Um, so how do you balance your passions and exercise self-control in your pursuits? or or do you think there should be this sense of control, or should it just be more spontaneous and with the wind and following your your curiosities? So how do you say uh, no to this hobby or, Are you content with being stretched in different directions? What advice or words of counsel would you give to a person who struggles navigating all their interests as they pursue to hone a craft?
1: I'm going to say that I feel you and that getting spread too thin in multiple directions of things that you're interested in and trying to hone in on something is really hard. It is really hard. I'm not going to say that I am someone who's mastered it in any way. So my system is still kind of like a working system. Um, but what I will say is for someone who isn't necessarily a specialist where they're like, I'm going to be a doctor and that's all I'm going to do. But there might be more of like a multi potentialite. And you're starting to figure out like, should I niche down, should I niche up? Should I like have things that combine together? It's difficult and you kind of become a generalist, but you also wanna be a specialist and you wanna deep dive into different things. It's difficult. And so right now my kind of working-ish system, number one is to simply just accept that we are humans and we are offered a, a certain amount of time in our lifetime. And there are limitations to how much we can pursue. Now, I'm not trying to say that in a way to discourage, but rather to remind that there's only so much time and life is short. So, yes, you do need to be very deliberate and intentional about what you're doing so that you can open up more doors in the worlds that you want to go in. So first is to take it that way, accept that, yeah, you're going to miss out on some things but you are also going to really flourish in the other places you're at. The next thing is that kind of helps me feel like I'm just not a bouncing ball all over the place as I do different things is to consult my value system and find an underlying thread that connects everything together. So for example, um, let's say I like to play piano. I like music, but I also like politics. I also like finance. I also like... Um, Film studies, I also like writing. They might seem like quite off-the-wall different things, but for me, the underlying thread is two things. One, personal growth. Two, storytelling. So when I'm working on writing, it's not like, oh, I'm working on writing, I'm not working on music. Uh." No, it's I'm working on storytelling because the things that I'm finding in writing is going to help enrich my ability to play piano and tell stories through music or through film. That's going to help my personal growth because a lot of the times the storytelling things that you're learning it's human psychology and that human psychology leads into finance so if you're going into investing and stuff in stocks, you need to know what the world is thinking about as a collective it's a human psychological thing. So you get all these things that are weaving together in some way that not we, no matter what you work on you're working on a bigger goal your bigger why so that will again. You're finding that thread that paves your pathway. But as you're searching around that pathway, if your bigger why is there, you're going to always have your compass and your compass is never going to stop working. So consult your values and then consult with the underlying thread that is really connecting all these things that you're interested in, because there has to be a connection if you're interested in them. Mm. So that kind of, for me, reassures me that I'm just not like doing everything at once. (laughs) that's one thing the other one is then to put everything in a hierarchy of priority it's going to offer you the most wide foundation to build other things because unfortunately we might not always be able to study five things at once to a productive deep satisfying level but let's say i'm learning i really like languages let's say i'm I'm going to i want to learn all the languages well there's a system to that First thing is, it might not be the smartest thing that if you're an English speaker to go and dive right into learning Chinese because it's so on the other end of the phonetics, but what you can do is start to work on languages that you might be interested in that are closer to what you already know and whether it's the grammar or in the phonetics. So maybe you start learning some French and some Spanish and stuff, because they're kind of similar that if you learn a little bit of Spanish, you kind of already are learning a little bit of French and you're kind of learning this. And then it's also working on your brain to start to learn how to think in another language. It's another system. But that forms a foundation for you to then go on to the next language that might be a bit more foreign to you from the ones that you've learned it might be German. And that helps get you all the way to say, learn Chinese or whatever it is. And then once you do that, you kind of, you get to speed up and be more efficient in what you're doing and you start to build a system for yourself. Now, wonderful thing about learning languages in that way is it gives you access to forming this foundation to learn other things that are similar like music, you're going to have a much easier time learning music than if that's your other interest that you have so prioritizing what you're interested in and how big of a foundation it can build for other aspects that you're learning so you don't have to rebuild those skills every time you're learning something else find how they're connected so that when you are jumping skills you have that bridge point and then that's like the strategy the other thing when you're really learning like you're interested in a lot of things is that it might not necessarily be that you want to get straight deep down to the nitty-gritty of stuff but rather learn the absolute foundational aspects of what it is you're trying to learn. So let's say we do martial arts. People are like, oh, I want to fight someone. So I'm like, you're going to go straight into sparring. Well, no, if you really hone in on having really good technique on how to punch and how to kick and how to defend, then you can spar. You just need the experience of sparring and utilizing those skills, but once you have the basics down. You can allow you have the scaffolding to allow your brain to just swim through and make the connections that it needs so then you're not trying to learn a martial arts per se but you're learning the basics that open you up to multiple martial arts so knowing your basics is super important and then the last thing I would say is networking. Because sometimes you might have that one random thing that you enjoy that really doesn't tie into your thread of anything that you're trying to do. Maybe it's like, I don't know, maybe you're really interested in mushrooms and mushrooms have like nothing to do with anything. Okay, well, if it's not in your kind of zone of everything else, then find someone who really loves mushrooms and you talk to them because they can be your second brain in your network that it kind of gets filtered through so you feel like you're learning about mushrooms you are but you are not the one who actually has to go into the forest and try those mushrooms Mm. so yeah i would say find that thread find know the basics find things that help connect things together and what you're learning and uh have a second brain also known as your network
0: i like that especially uh your point on value and in hierarchy um, cause, cause this is something I I struggle with a lot. So, thanks for for sharing that. No problem. So, in memory sports, uh, when we go to national, international, or online competitions, um, sometimes we can we can get very nervous because we have cameras over there, we have people watching, we have all of our all of these eyes on us, um, but we have to stay focused in order to to perform uh, to, in order to perform really well. So um, but sometimes we can we can get nervous and our performance uh, doesn't match what we can do in personal training uh, by virtue of this this nervousness. So from, your, from, from the perspective of a pianist and an educator, how do you deal with pressure and nervousness before live performances? How do you bring the same standard of your training at home into the actual performance? So how do you prepare yourself and or coach others in preparation?
1: I'm going to first say, as I completely relate to you about having to execute something um, to a high skill level, and that is very precise in front of people is a very challenging task. It is absolutely challenging. And for people out there who is like, I want to always have perfect performances, I always want to be able to um, perform perfectly every single time, you know, it ain't going to happen. Accept that. Please accept that. And you're going to have a much easier time of getting there to begin with. It's hard. So in terms of how I deal with the pressure and the nerves, how do I bring the same standard to things that I do in my practice session and into a live performance? And how do I prepare or coach others? The the thing I always say is you're going to fail to the level of your systems. If your systems are not good, when you're under pressure, it will crumble. So your systems better be good. And so what are those systems? How do you practice? How are you managing your nerves? What is your mental state when you're on stage? How are you going to, what's your system in handling when an oops happens on stage, no matter how small or catastrophic it may be? If any one of those parts have a weak link, you're going to be nervous. On top of that, you are going to be nervous, period. It's Hmm. not going to go away. So it's a, matter, it's a matter of how you're gonna deal with it. There are a select few people in the world where they like live off of performing. They have that mindset, it's built into them and nerves is not really a thing. It's more of an excitement thing. That's how they register it and it benefits them. You know, all the power to them. But for most of us, you're gonna be nervous. So you're gonna have to figure out how to deal with it. That's the first thing. So in terms of practicing, in terms of failing like, to, your, to the level of your systems, If you are a mindless practicer, if you don't have a good practice regime and you're not practicing what you want to be performing, you cannot expect yourself to perform what you want because you have not practiced what you want. So again, going back to that whole deliberate practicing, being mindful is important. The other thing that sometimes students fail to realize is the mind that you have when you are practicing is a completely different mind from the one you are performing. Especially from an artistic standpoint, it's you're using completely different systems. So the practice is there so you have the technical, mental facility, and all that stuff to do. But when you're performing, it's you kind of have to have room for spontaneity and to be able to move around. So in the same way where we go back to that martial arts, then you have to learn your basics, how to kick and to punch. But when you're sparring. You can't be thinking like, okay, to punch, I need to have a good placement of my foot and then I'm going to go through my hip. You know, that's got to be on automatic and you have to know how to use those tools spontaneously. So you have to practice performing. You have to practice what it's like to have people eyeing on you, have that stopwatch on, have the cameras looking at you. What is your mental state there? Because your mental state when you're performing is different from when you're practicing. And if you're practicing and executing in a different mental state, you are going to fail unless you've you know know how to work in that different mental state so that's another thing um the next one is how do you what's your pre-performance routine how are you preparing for these performances if you're going from i'm alone and comfortable in my practice room and everything is great to being like in front of a thousand people and there is no bridge for that uh yeah you're not gonna have a fun time and it's not exactly your fault because no one told you how to bridge yourself from one place to another everybody's pre-practice pre-performance Uh, routine is going to be different for me i know that i tend to have like a racing brain So if I have a racing brain, I'm not going to look at my music because that's gonna make me think like, oh, I'm gonna forget something. I'm gonna forget something. What's this? No, what's that? No. And then you get into an analytical state of brain. That's not what you wanna be when you're performing. So I do a lot of breathing. I do a lot of walking just to get the energy out and knowing how to center and how to basically activate your energy to get you in a place where you actually need a little bit of those nerves to help you think on your feet when you need to. Because if you're too comfortable and calm and sedated, you don't have the reaction time to fix any upcoming mistakes that might happen on the keyboard or what might happen. You need to be a little bit amped up to be like, I'm about to hit a wrong note and I need to like be spontaneous and figure out how to get myself out of there. So the nerves are not there to necessarily inhibit you, but they are there to help you in some way, learn how to make them to your advantage. That's also part of your system. And then the last thing is um, figuring out how to be compassionate And how to be forgiving of yourself when you don't perform the way you want on stage because a lot of the times the reason why we might get nervous on stage or in a performance setting and we are not performing the way we usually do in the practice room is because we put so much pressure on ourselves if it's not perfect my career is going to end Sometimes it's that catastrophic thinking. If it's not perfect, my professor is going to fail me. If it's not perfect, if I don't execute this run, then the whole piece is going to crumble and I'm not going to be able to play anymore. Like, that's scary. But if you go, hey, I am a human. I'm going to make mistakes on stage, but I trust myself that I'm going to be able to get myself out of it. I'm not going to die on stage. I'm not performing surgery. Maybe someone's going to be like, oh, you like messed up a run. Like, okay, I messed up a run, but I also did really well on X, Y, and Z. And being able to forgive yourself and be like, I made that mistake and I realize it's because I didn't practice this enough. Next time I'm going to do that and hopefully that won't be there. It relieves so much pressure off of you that you actually have mental room to like actually do what you want to do. And then if none of that works, what I'm going to say is you have lost your why. If your why on stage is like, I'm going to be the fastest player and I'm not going to forget everything anything and I'm going to perform perfectly that's stressful but if your why is say I'm going to go into this competition or I'm going to go into this performance because I want to see how it's like an experiment I want to see how my practice has helped me for the stage performance and if it's going to make it for a better one. If it does, great, I'm going to keep that. If it doesn't, I'm going to figure it out. Or my goal on stage is not to get a run perfect, but rather to be my most expressive self or to really convey a certain message with this piece to the best of my ability. Then it's not a death sentence. Mm. And it's also more into your values of why are you a musician? Why are you performing? Because I'm pretty sure you're not performing just so you can execute something perfectly. If that's the case, I'm going to put it in my MIDI system and we're done. So that's the broad scheme of things, I would say.
0: Ah, oh, that's, that's good. Good advice. So uh, where can we find you on social media? If someone wanted to book a lesson with you, how could they do that? Do you have a, a website? what's your Instagram, social media accounts, and so
1: on. Yeah, so I have, um, my handle is The Open Score, all one word. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and my website is uh, the open, www.theopenscore.com. And you can book a lesson through there. I have like a Google form that will just lead you through the whole process just to see in the initial stages if we are like a good match before we really start to engage. Um yeah, those are my socials and that's how you can book a lesson with me.
0: (laughs) Ah, very good. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I will be sure to include that in the show notes. Um, Make sure to follow her. Um, She has an excellent Instagram page. I really uh, enjoy it. So um, is there anything else that you wanted to share to our audience uh, before we close? Any, any final words?
1: Any final words, I would say don't put too much pressure on yourself. Follow your curiosity, follow your feelings, and just enjoy life because it is short. We don't have a lot of time here. So don't put too much pressure on yourself on how fast and well you can memorize something. But use that to enrich your life. And I hope everyone has like a good happy life.
0: That's good. Well, thanks for for being on the show um it was uh, a great and lovely conversation uh so thanks again i appreciate it
1: thank you for inviting me on the show it was lovely chatting with you and i hope we can do it again in the future
0: thank you all right um i'll talk to you later and hope you have a good rest of your day
1: You too bye